0: Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. A Fascinate Productions podcast for drug science. Today's guest is an unusual one for the programme. He's a journalist called Mabin Azar, and he's a prize-winning documentary called Hometown, which is a story of how he goes back to Huddersfield to investigate what, on the surface of it, looks like a police crime, a murder, and turns out to be a remarkable story of the collapse of a community in many ways under the influence of drugs and drug dealing. So uh, if you've not seen the programme, look out for it, and uh, I'm sure after listening to this, you'll want to see it very quickly. Okay, well, welcome to this uh, drug science podcast. And today I'm delighted to say that my guest is uh, Mobeen Azar. He's a journalist, uh, lives in London, but comes from Huddersfield. And during the course of the, our chat this afternoon, he's going to talk about a, a remarkable experience that he put on video uh, when he returned to Huddersfield after a number of years being away and, and to explore issues which he thought were going to be simple and turned out to be very complicated because drugs were involved. So welcome Abin. It's really lovely to be with you Dave, really is. Thank you very much for for having me. Good, well I was, as I said, extraordinarily impressed with your documentary and we'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. But Give us a bit more of your background, introduce people to yourself. You, you, you were born in Huddersfield and then you left to become a journalist, is that right?
1: I was, yes. Yeah. So I was born in Huddersfield. I'd say very kind of average working class family. I'm the son of immigrants. Some of my parents came from Pakistan in, uh, in the late 60s. Dad was a bus driver and then later they had a, a little corner shop. And yeah, I loved growing up in Huddersfield, really, really loved it. And then as many people do, when it was time to go to uni didn't go too far actually just nipped across to Leeds and then I began working and with the world of work I moved to Manchester I kept kind of dipping further and further south so I went to Manchester across the Pennines but then to Birmingham and then ended up in in London eventually and now London
0: is home. And you started off as a a print journalist did you?
1: I did, yes. Yeah. So when I was a student, I actually studied law, I did a law degree. And when I was doing that, I uh, worked on a very small community paper, and it was uh, called Avaz, And Avaz is an Urdu word, uh, which means voice. And it was a bilingual paper. So I do the English sections. And then there was the second half was an Urdu language section, and it was uh community focused news. I had a great time doing it. It taught me a lot and then, after i'd done law, I studied broadcast journalism and then then I began working. So you always
0: wanted to be a communicator really I was certainly yeah completely i mean it,
1: it, in all honesty though, I think I was very idealistic as a young as many young people are, and I think I had this kind of vision of wanting to change the world. And I was very political. I was involved in lots of student politics and protest movements. And I think kind of coming to the end of the law degree, I thought, okay, if I'm really going to have any kind of impact, I think my skill set is best used to to storytelling. Mm -hmm. That's what I can be used for, storytelling and raising awareness and starting discussions. And that's when I thought yeah, maybe I should be a journalist. I and mean, then, yeah, and I think, I, I would like to think, Dave, that that idealism hasn't entirely left me. I'd, I'd like to think there's still there's still elements of idealism. I don't, you know, make no apology. I think idealism can be a really good thing. Yeah, so, yeah, I was an
0: idealist once. Don't yeah. <laughs> sound so jaded, Dave. But <laughs> well, I'm a lot older than you. <laughs> but it's a tough, it's a very tough career journalism, isn't it?
1: It is, it can be. And it's quite cutthroat. And at the same time, those opportunities can be really difficult to come by. And you're only ever really remembered for the last story you broke. So it can really feel like a treadmill. uh, And it can feel like a constant chase. I have to say, I've been doing it for a long time. I've been doing it for 15 years. Mm -hmm. And for now still today i can hand on heart i've actually got my hand on my heart right now i can say uh, i still really enjoy the chase
0: so you're a freelancer really?
1: yeah yeah i was staffed wow. at the bbc for about wow. nine years then i decided and actually it was quite difficult they wanted me to move back up to manchester the whole bbc move to Salford yeah, yeah, happened yeah. so that happened and i just bought a place down in london and so i thought okay this is really scary but i left and uh that's maybe going back six six years yes i think i've been in the business for sixteen, seventeen 17 years maybe even now ridiculous Matt god where's the time gone but um but yeah i'm effectively uh, a freelancer most of the stuff i do is still
0: for the bbc but uh but i am i'm a freelancer and it's mostly current affairs? Or I, I, did I understand you might have done some overseas stuff?
1: Yeah, I do a fair bit of overseas stuff. Uh, it is mainly current affairs and it's mainly documentary. So whether that be, uh, I do lots and lots of Radio 4, but the the documentary strands like Crossing Continents and Assignment. Uh, I do a fair amount of stuff for BBC2, do a lot of stuff for BBC3, but I, I worked in production for a long time. So I went from print uh, I've been a uh-huh. cameraman. I was a producer uh-huh. for a long time. If I can be uh, not humble for a second, uh, I, I won a, a BAFTA as a series producer for my work behind the camera. So yes, yeah, so I feel like I've been in the industry and and seen it from lots of different perspectives.
0: And that's so that's why the the Huddersfield documentary was so well put together because you you knew what it was all about. You knew from <laughs> because it was you figuring it. But <laughs> But you knew how to get the cameraman working right.
1: I think so. I have to say as well, a lot of the producers that I work with and directors that I work with uh since I have been doing in front of camera stuff, I love them and I think they love me. We have a brilliant working relationship. But I think I can be quite difficult. And I can be quite difficult because I'm always thinking about everyone else's job and I always have an opinion on how everyone is doing their job. So uh yes. You're the master of all (laughs) trades. That's very kind of you, yeah,
0: hopefully. Had you you been interested in drugs before the Homecoming documentary?
1: Yeah, yeah. So hometown was the latest in a long run of things that I'd done on narcotics. You're probably aware of the um, work of a presenter called Stacey Dooley. Now, Stacey Dooley is a good friend of mine. And Stacey started years ago doing BBC Three documentaries and has since then just had a wonderful career. I made a film with Stacey about crystal meth in Mexico and LA, uh, which was an hour for BBC Three and BBC One. And then I also made a film with Stacey about a drug called Yaba. Yaba is a synthetic drug in Thailand. Thailand, yeah. Uh, yeah. So we went to Thailand for that. And then I'd made a couple of docs as well about heroin addiction and the sale of heroin in Karachi. And that was for the BBC News Channel. It's a strand called Our World. Right. And so drugs and narcotics and addiction have been a, a theme. And it's something that I'm I'm very
0: interested in. So that's why you, you picked it up so fast when you went home. So so this wonderful film called Hometown, uh, so you, it kicked off with you reading about someone being killed by the police in Huddersfield, is that right? It did. It was quite... Uh, A
1: strange story in any circumstance. It was particularly strange because this had happened in Huddersfield. For anyone that doesn't know about Huddersfield, I would describe it as a lovely, friendly, green town, which has great people in it, and a lovely train station. That's how I'd describe Huddersfield. And back in 2017, January of 2017, I remember the day quite well. My phone started pinging. I was getting lots of texts, lots of friends from Huddersfield were saying, have you seen the news? And then I started getting links to newspaper stories. And they were saying, yeah, what, you know, turn it on national news. And I was thinking, why, why, what's happened? And I started going through all these messages. And sure enough, when I turned on the news, I saw that a man who was 28 at the time, he was called Yasser Yagoub, had been shot just off a slip road on the M62. And it was known that he'd been shot by the police and he'd been killed and in the following 24, 48 hours, I continued to get lots of messages and lots of calls from people in Huddersfield, and there were competing theories. So some people were saying there was even at one point a reference to it possibly being terror-related. Mm-hmm. Then people started saying he, he'd been killed in a kind of premedited operation. Then someone, I remember them saying it was actually gangsters pretending to be the police. And there were these competing theories. Yeah. And so I got interested in the story of this man called Yasser Yagoub. And so quite quickly after that, I reached out to his family and it was his father in particular. And Yasser's father invited me to Huddersfield. I see. Uh, uh... And he invited me with, in a very particular context. So he said, "Mubin, I want you to cover my campaign. And he was organizing a campaign at the time, which was called, and is still going, it's called the Justice for Yasser campaign. And Yasser's father described what had happened as an execution. Mm-hmm. So I remember he looked me in the eye and he said, the police executed my son. Mm-hmm. And he likened, and to this day, he likened what happened to his son as a kind of uh, a story about police brutality. He said it was, it was, it was about injustice, effectively. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I was interested in that. Of course I was interested and I wanted to know what had happened. But quite quickly after that, Dave, there were rumours.
0: Hang on, just hold that point. One of the things that was fascinating about your series was how it was kind of real time, but you had to get a cameraman and everything you know you have to get up there to Huddersfield and start making a film about you t- exploring this execution and then it, it, uh, how do you actually pull that together what seems what, sure. <laughs> to be quite a big thing to do yeah so I this the starting point was I was going to write an article yeah
1: I was going to write a print article quite quickly into that process and it was after the first conversation with Yasser Yacoub's father who we'll call Mr. Yacoub so Quite soon after that, and quite soon after I started hearing little rumblings of rumours, I thought this is going to be a bigger story. I I didn't at that point think this can be a series. I didn't know what format this would take. I thought it might end up being a news report. But I did then speak to my colleagues, and then we spoke to the BBC, and we said this is something, I think we should try filming the actual process. I think we should try filming the unfolding mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of that story. And it was, I have to say, in program making terms, I'd say it was, uh, it's a bit different. Because as you'll know, a lot of TV and a lot of journalism now is done in quite a, a formulaic way where you kind of know the end before you've started. And this was very different to that. Well, that comes
0: across, and that's what's what really. Remarkable, because the story unfolds and it twists and turns and it, it, it grows, and, and uh, yeah. so you we actually were quite fortunate that you had support to, to film it all the way through. I mean, that was, that was great.
1: Completely, and, uh, you know, there was a lot of support from uh, the people that I made it with and from the BBC, and I was really uh, backed in that, and that was a brilliant position to be in. And Can I ask you, how long did it take from, from you know, the first... So, from the start to the end, it was in excess of 18 months... Wow. And a lot of that was to do with the fact that following this shooting, at the centre of all this, there was actually a criminal trial that took place. And as you know, with criminal trials, they're often a start-stop affair. And this was one of those.
0: Oh, I see. So you were going up and down to Huddersfield to film bits in between the rest of your... your Exactly.
1: I'd say the bulk of it was done in in one, maybe six-month
0: five-month chunk but i was going up and down over this 18
1: 19 month period
0: for those who are going to watch it it's uh, it actually it's it, it races along you never realize it, 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 it there was 18 months of it it was it, it bounces along on a tremendous speed so you go out to huddersfield you meet mr coob mm-hmm. he tells you his, his he believes his dad has been executed by the police mm-hmm. you're hearing other stories and then you you start to try to find out the truth and that that was the first thing i remember getting people to talk about it was quite difficult wasn't it It was very difficult.
1: So it's important to say Yasser Yacoub, the man that was shot, he's someone that was well known. He was rooted in the community. So lots of people knew him, but then I would bump into people, for example, who went to my school and they'd be very pleased to see me. And then they'd say, yeah, yeah, what are you doing in town? And I'd say, oh, I'm trying to find out about the Yasser Yacoub story, the guy that was shot near the M62. And generally people would close up. It was as if their personal kind of shutter would come down and they wouldn't want to speak about it. Or if they did, they'd say, you can't quote me. Don't film me. You know, just tell your colleagues to go over there for a second. Colleagues that were filming me, of course. And I'd say, well, I'm going to write a story. So can I I take some notes? No, 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 don't take some notes. Don't take some notes. And this was really because the rumours that were swirling around came down to a, a central question. And that central question was, was Yasser Yokoob a drug dealer? And that's ex- an extremely contentious question to ask of anyone. It's a particular contentious question to ask of someone that has been dead and was shot by the police. Uh, and, you know, there was an ongoing investigation and an IOPC investigation, which still hasn't been formally published. You know, there was lots of, of questions. But at the heart of this, I referenced there's a court case. The reason there was a court case is because on the day Yasser Yokoob died it was on this slip road and he was a passenger in a car and he was traveling as part of a cavalcade so there was yasser yakub then there was his driver and then there were two men in a car behind and what i found that happened is the police forced these vehicles to stop so i'm not talking about a polite please pull over i'm talking about a, a forced stop and at, at that point and this all came out in court there was an altercation, there was a conversation, and Yasi ended up being shot. Now, the three men he was with that day went on trial, and they went on trial for the possession of a weapon with conspiracies to cause harm. And so I really embedded myself in that trial, spent every day in the press gallery, and spent a lot of time gathering information around that trial. And what that meant is the rumours about drug dealing... I was constantly seeing people on a daily basis in court who knew Yasser really well, talking about the people that had spent the last minutes of his life with him and that had been friends with him for a very long time. And so I'd see those people, I'd see people they're associated with, I'd see his friends. That meant certain conversations could happen. And the more digging I did, the more I found out this was a much bigger story than I originally thought it would be.
0: I mean, I know you—you you described going back to Huddersfield how it had changed. It used to be—it it was much less open and, and in a sense, friendly than when you would left. Mm-hmm. And that and part of that was because because you were asking the uh, the wrong questions, and people were mm-hmm. scared about giving the giving telling the answers. But I think you also began to discover that Huddersfield itself had changed. It, this wasn't just as a result of Yasser yeah, so Yakub's death. You, you and you did this amazing research on, uh, on the number of crimes of uh, gun or, or knife crimes and Huddersfield came out at the most dangerous place in Britain. Is that right? There were some shocking statistics. And if I can give you a bit of context, this was happening
1: all around me. So it was as if the story was kind of running on and I was chasing it because I went up, as I say, for a very particular context. I moved up there. And once I moved up there, what happened is quite soon after I arrived, I would start getting news alerts or friends who knew I was in town would text me and say, have you heard there's just been a stabbing on your old road? You know, a couple of days later, have you heard there's just been a shooting around the corner from your old school? And so I ended up in this situation where I'd jump in the car, go down to these crime scenes, you know, there'd be fresh police tape everywhere. And almost invariably, there were links in all these different crime scenes. And those links were, when I'd ask locals, I'd say, what happened here? What have you seen? They'd say, oh, it was a bunch of Asian boys, always boys, always Asian boys, always young. You know, I'm talking about 20s, 30s, teenagers even. And then they'd say, oh, you know, I'd say, what is it about? And they'd say, oh, uh, well, it's drug related. Of course, it's about drugs. Everyone knows it is. And so, yes, I did do this research because I started plotting out how much had I missed in Huddersfield? You know, what was going on? This wasn't like the place that I left behind. And I found out that in a four-year period, two years leading up to the death of Yasser Yacoub and two years since then, so whilst I was in town, there had been hundreds of firearms-related incidents. And it went in many ways. It was above... You can't just say, oh, well, that's happening everywhere because it was above the national average. And people like the local MP, Barry Sherman. You know, since Hometown, the series came out, have been very vocal and have said it wasn't an accurate representation. But I've always said this and I'll say again today that I would appeal to people like Barry Sherman or anyone thinks that this is bad PR for Huddersfield, just engage with the facts.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The facts are there is a real significant problem with violent crime, and I would say I've done the research, it's drug-related violent crime. In many places in Britain, Hoddersfield in particular has a particular dynamic, and simply saying it happens everywhere
0: is, is not an adequate response. We'll get back to the interview in just a second. I just want to thank all the drug science community members for your continued support. Without you, the dissemination of information like this would not be possible. Drug science is, and always will be, independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships, but by becoming a drug science community member, you'll be helping us bring about change. You'll also receive access to exclusive events and will be able to attend all drug science events for free. To see how to become a community member, click on the link in the show notes. Now, where were we? Let's get back to the show. Absolutely not, and we'll come on to the, your solutions or your, mm-hmm. your suggestions for solutions in a minute. But so you tell the listeners how things began to evolve. So you went, it went you went up there thinking. This could have been the police actually executing someone. And then you discovered mm-hmm. that it was much more complicated than that. And there was a broader issue in the town of drug-related crime.
1: Absolutely. So as I started to go to these crime scenes, there were these themes. So people would talk about young Asian men and they talk about drugs. And so I started thinking that I need to spend some time and invest some real time in joining these dots and working out what is happening here. And what I quite quickly found out is there was a hierarchy And there was a system in play here. So what I'm talking about is a lot of that violence was either to do with competing drug gangs fighting over territory or it was reprisals for earlier fights over territory. But it was drug related and I could see that happening. But then I thought I need to hear this from the horse's mouth, essentially. So I started putting a lot of work and the team, put a lot of work into trying to get up the hierarchy and the chain of dealers so that started at the very bottom. So I'm talking about the street level dealers. I met and interviewed, for example, people in their early teens. And I'll never forget this meeting. A young man, early teens, who would talk about how he entered the drugs market. He'd talk about being 13 or 14 and being offered a few hundred pounds to move drugs around Huddersfield. And he'd talk about why then, you know, that would result in him carrying a weapon and the normalization of carrying a weapon. So that was one step. And then what I wanted to do is move up that chain.
0: But just hold it, hold it there, because I think your programme is really remarkable, because you'd managed to get, obviously, incognito in, in these weird disguises with the, with, the, with the voice alterations. You'd managed to talk to a lot of people who were actually doing the business. And that must have been quite challenging to actually get. I mean, OK, hiding them was absolutely critical, hiding their identity. But it was quite impressive that you managed to become, you know, at least to become close to so many people who were doing the business. I appreciate that.
1: Dave. I would say uh, it was, you know, full credit to the the team of people I was working with. But I had many, many nights waiting in a car, in a car park somewhere with an entire crew at three o'clock in the morning. You know, someone that has said that they're going to turn up has just not turned up. And so to get that kind of access, it, it took a lot of patience and a lot of time and a lot of investment. But was it worth it? course it was worth it because i think if we are in any way to understand the drugs market and what is going on in our towns and cities then you have to be able to engage with people that are living that life and are on the inside you know it's all very well you know having community meetings and all that stuff has a part to play but you can't do it from on high you know you have to be speaking to the people that are in the business and and i guess the fact that you were from there helped It did. I mean, it's really fascinating to me that when I would hang out on my old road where my house used to be, every single time I was there, sometimes I'd go just to get a cup of tea from a cafe, I'd bump into people and I'd tell them what I was doing. And, you know, even if they didn't want to appear to be helping me on camera, a lot of those people would say, oh, yeah, I've I've got your number, I'm going to text you later. And then I'd get a text. And that text would say, you might want to look in this area or you might want to speak to so-and-so. And so it did become apparent to me that, one, a huge section of the community was being affected by this violence and was sick to the back teeth of it. And two, a lot of people knew who had a part to play or knew, for example, I'm paraphrasing here, you know, there was this idea that, hmm, there's that house down there, you know, it's number whatever, and I see people going in and out at the oddest times, and this car's always pulling. There's something going on there, Mabin. Why don't Why don't you go and have a look at that? So people, you know, there was a genuine desire for people to understand what was going on, and that was really helpful. And I think that is primarily because I'm I'm from Huddersfield,
0: and because I knew a lot of those people. Uh, hence, it's called hometown. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, there you go. But the, and the one person you who you really found who would speak about things was the imam, wasn't it? He was yes. remarkably uh, uh, literate and communicative, you know, He's a, br- man, He's a
1: brilliant, brilliant person. So he was called uh, Imam Elias and he is a really good friend of mine. I've known him for decades. And um, he, as an imam, I think this is important to understand, as an imam, you are are meant to lead prayers, of course, but there's also an emphasis on um, pastoral care, you could say. So taking care of the community and advising people. And I think a lot of our imams don't fulfill that duty. Imam Elias does. And as a result of that, he was one of the only people, I would say, who didn't self-censor. He was very vocal about the scourge of drug dealing and he was very vocal about Yasser Yaqub he was very vocal in terms of saying, look, there are plenty of people in the community that knew what Yasa was about, and Yasser was a drug dealer. And so that gave me a really clear starting point. It gave me a lot of confidence, and it gave me the ability. You've got to understand there were many people, many, many people, the overwhelming majority, who were looking at this and looking at this as a piece of journalism and saying, you know, whilst I was up there making it, and uh, making moral judgments. So they would say to me, Mabin, why are you asking these questions of a dead man? You can't ask these questions of a dead man. This is terrible. There was this inference that I was somehow doing something morally wrong for asking these questions. But you know, the, the more significant point is the more digging I did, the more this jigsaw was fitting together from the low level dealers, then moving up that chain. And, you know, if I can talk about the idea of, I guess what you'd call mid-level dealers and then even importers, there were multiple anecdotes of people not only having heard of Yasser Yaku, but having worked with him. And so things really started to slot together. There was one point where a let's say, a senior level dealer confirmed that Yasser Yacoub had not just been a dealer, but he had been what they described as a kingpin, that he had dealt in kilos of heroin. You know, and as you'll know, a kilo of heroin has a huge street value. We're talking, you know,
0: big money here. And he dealt in, in kilos. What was very interesting of it was the uh, the ability of the community and, and family to deny that i mean it's just sort of to to see wealth but somehow attributed to some something other yeah it's it's a sort of willful denial of the possibility or or the fact that this that kind of wealth must have come from something like drugs
1: yeah i think that's very true and of course as you say that starts with Yasser's family but it extends beyond that it extends to a community that i would say in many ways is is living in denial and there's multiple reasons for that there's uh historical reasons there's economic reasons there's reasons to do with I'd say it's patriarchy essentially it's the idea that men are only deemed to be men if they are the providers and making lots of money and there's huge emphasis on that but then the help isn't always there to get those men to where they want to be and I think it's important as well if I can you know I I started doing some research and I think I put in an FOI request as well uh, around convictions and what I found out uh, is if you look at the urban population of Yorkshire and Humber, the urban population, roughly, it's, it's about 5% of that population is British Pakistani. And if you look at the same area and you look at convictions over um, over a five-year period, convictions for uh, possession with intent to supply class A's, and you look at that in terms of particular demographics, British Pakistanis are hugely overrepresented so 5% of the urban, urban population, 27% of convictions for supplying class A's. And so there became an urgency for me to try to understand and unpick what was going on there. What is going on there? And and what you've just flagged in terms of a community in denial, I think has a has a major part to play. Of course it does, until you confront something and have a conversation about it until you are willing to ask your son, you know, how he's managed to buy a Range Rover when he hasn't worked in three years. For example. Yes.
0: Well, that was a good example in the film, wasn't
1: it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, those conversations are are not going to happen. You know, there are multifaceted reasons the community is overrepresented. And so uh, a big part of this project then became unpicking those reasons. And once again, you know, we're talking about the chain of supply here as I moved up that chain of supply, I saw those reasons and that kind of willingness to look the other way. I saw that in action. You know, if I can use one specific example. Please do, no. There was one dealer who once again was was dealing at uh, quite a, a senior level. You know, he told me about the money he made. He told me it was in the thousands. He was earning thousands of pounds a month from drug dealing, from selling heroin and cocaine. And uh, I asked him what his family thinks he does. And he said, they think I do... It was manual labor on the roadside. So very ambiguous. And I said, what do you mean? Like you do roadworks? Yeah, they think I do roadworks. Now, when I think about that, and I had this conversation with him, if you are working by the roadside, you're completely respectable, great job. You're not going to be making thousands of pounds a month. So for you to be driving a particular car, wearing a particular watch, and he showed me his watch, by the way. So, you know, for you to be having that watch, driving that car and so forth, it takes a great degree of not asking questions to not get those answers. And when I really pushed him, it was fascinating to me. When I really pushed this particular, particular guy, he said to me, he said, he said, well, my dad, I think you might know what I do. So he will never take money from me. So I give it to my brothers and sisters instead, and they will give it to my dad. So I said, okay, so there must be, there's a moral question there. Then if your dad has made that decision, there's a, there's, there is, there's a moral aspect there. And he got really angry and he said to me, he goes, why are you making this about Pakistanis? Why does it have to be about Pakistanis? What about the white people that sell drugs? So I pointed out once again, and this is, this is consistent in, in, in the whole series, that of course the majority of convictions for drug dealing in Britain, majority of perpetrators of drug dealing are, are whites and they are, are men. That doesn't mean we should not be asking questions when they arise. And I thought the kind of moral, I would describe it as the kind of mental gymnastics that a drug dealer has to do to sit in front of me and say, yes, I'm selling drugs, I'm profiting off people's misery, I sell heroin to people, you know, who are extremely vulnerable, but I'm going to point a finger at you for asking
0: this question. I thought it was astounding. I thought it was absolutely astounding. I guess they have to practice that kind of, Deflecting attention from their own soul or mm-hmm. conscience or whatever, you know, it's something that have to do on an hourly basis. They on an hourly
1: basis, yeah. I, th-
0: I, think, I think that's very true. I was very interested in this, the, this analysis that, that it was, a, to some extent, it was about providing for the family, though. And, and, and the idea that if it, it may be one of the solutions would be to have better opportunities for them to provide in, in legal ways. I, I
1: think that's absolutely right. And we do touch upon this. So, you know, I referenced masculinity earlier and this kind of very narrow, I'd say, patriarchal view that, you know, men need to be making money and lots of it. And that's how their value is defined is not helpful. Also, historically, you know, what I know personally is Huddersfield and Yorkshire more broadly. We're talking about mill towns. And we're talking about mill towns where a significant section, huge section, of the immigrant population, my parents' generation worked in those jobs. They worked in mills. My dad was a bus driver for a long time. Now you've got a situation where those mills, those industries don't exist anymore. Yes, you can still be a bus driver. Those particular industries, a lot of them have dried up. And I don't think within our communities generally, and this isn't a racial thing, so I'm talking about average working class white people as well. You know, there hasn't been the investment. And we need to acknowledge that, that historically, a lot of these places feel, rightly so, I would say, they feel left behind.
0: Yeah, yeah the, the sort of analogies with Baltimore and, and the Wire came to me as like mm. you know, the, the problems of having a whole generation of pretty much unemployed young men is absolutely. You know, it makes drug dealing. You know, in some ways, was well, certainly not just appealing, but almost the only option for some people. Uh, and I think some people absolutely view it that way.
1: And of course, you know, we, we can, and we do, and I, I do, I certainly do, I'll hold my hands up, I moralise, but at the same time, you know, I know, as I said earlier, you know, my parents were very average in terms of income, and they lived very much that immigrant experience. I had the benefit of being the youngest of four children, and my brother and my sisters were bright, and I think my parents really emphasised education. I remember, Dave, I remember my dad saying to me when we were very young, I remember him saying if you don't do well at school there's no point of us being in this country. Yeah, interesting. You know, he he said that and I think and my mom said that and I think that was a brilliant thing for them to say because what it did is it provided a framework and a structure where not doing well didn't seem like an option. It felt self-indulgent, let's put it that way, because I knew You know, my parents made huge sacrifices. They left their families to come to this country. And so I knew if I wanted to mess around or bunk off school, you know, which I did from time to time, but I knew if if that was going to be the decision I'd really make, if I wasn't going to achieve at GCSE, if I wasn't going to end up doing A-levels and go to university, those words were ringing in my ear. You know, I was betraying the sacrifice of the parent generation and my parents in particular, and so that wasn 't an option, but for a lot of people that 's not the case and I think that 's why you have a huge section and I spoke to lots of these people who uh, see drug dealing as the only option and they see it as one that is is morally uh, not hugely problematic and It pains me to say this and this is I think this is a really important relevant example you know one of the things that I found out when I got to the the, the very top of that supply chain. I spoke to a dealer who was importing heroin on a large scale. And, you know, I, I knew, and I'd, by this point, I'd had uh, multiple anecdotes about heroin being imported in baby bottles, in carbonates. This individual was importing on an industrial scale, shipments I'm talking about. And uh, he told me, he said a lot of the supply in Ramadan, in the Muslim holy month of Ramadan, the prices will change because a lot of young Muslims or a lot of Muslims who are involved in, in drug dealing will take a month off, which tells me, and the reason that I think this is extremely relevant is it tells me that there is absolutely, on some level, it, it does register that this is morally not a good thing to do because you're taking a month off.
0: Right. And that's where the imam actually was very... Powerful because he, he certainly made it clear that, that actually selling heroin to to non-Muslims was not acceptable under the Quran. I think I think yeah, yeah. I may paraphrase. Or to, any,
1: or to anyone, yeah. And uh, and, and David, I think it's uh, really important you reference this. So, You know, one of the themes, which was probably one of the most contentious themes uh, when I spoke to to former dealers and current dealers, was there was a view that if you are Pakistani of a Muslim background. It is somehow okay if you're dealing to non-Muslims or to white people. And so the Imam, as you say, was absolutely forthright. He would speak about this and this is documented. It's in, in the series, he would speak about it to the congregation. He would say there is no ambiguity here. If you profess to have any kind of morality, if you profess to be Muslims, drug dealing is not an option. And you cannot profit from other people's misery. Now, within the, the community and in many of the people I met, it pains me to say it, but I think things were a lot less clear. And I did hear these justifications and I heard them consistently. You know, the, the, other, the other consistent justification was, if I don't sell it, someone else is going to.
0: It went right through it, didn't it? You know, yeah, it, yeah, it, completely. It, the demand is there, so I, I, yeah, as you say, if I don't do it, someone else will, and I'm making a living. And I've got—if I don't do this, I won't be—I uh, won't have a living. So, yeah. Well, let's um, let's get back to the story then. So you've got to the court, uh, you've sat in court, which is not a very pleasant thing to do, day after day after day, and you discover that that um, yes, probably was a drug dealer, probably. Uh, although he obviously wasn't convicted because he was dead. Um, but you, you you actually managed to work out what was going on that day, didn't you? Completely. So a lot of this came out of court. A lot of it came out of uh, witness
1: testimony. There was a really significant kind of game changing moment in court where a uh, man called Moss Amin, who was Yasser's driver on the day he was shot, uh, in the dock, when asked about Yasser's life and what he did, he said, well, Yasser was a dealer. He was a drug dealer. He sold drugs. Those were the words. And so in court, it was established that Yasser Yagub had indeed been a drug dealer. I did some digging. I found out that actually uh, Yasser had previously been part of court proceedings in a case where he wasn't convicted and the case collapsed where he was charged with the same offense. So he was charged with possession of a Mm -hmm. firearm with intent to cause harm. With this second trial, if he'd have been alive, he would have, with his co-accused, been charged for a second time. And that was really significant because his father would have had me believe that, you know, but I wouldn't melt melt in this guy's mouth and he'd never been in trouble with, with the law, which just simply wasn't true. So it became established that he had indeed been a drug dealer. In court, it came out, and this was through the testimony of a police officer that, There had been information that Yasser was on his way somewhere and could potentially have caused harm to someone. And that's why the police had stopped his car. At the point that stopped his car, the police, as you'd expect, had explained who they were and asked everyone to raise their hands. At that point, it suggested that Yasser pulled out a gun. And the police officer who then ended up shooting Yasser said that he believed that he was at danger and the public would be at danger and so he had to respond. And he responded by pulling the trigger and Yasser Yokoob lost his life. I will never overlook the fact that a, a man who was someone's son, he was also a father, he was a brother, he lost his life. And uh, that's tragic and I think any reasonable person would say that is tragic and there should be another way but at the same time we have to acknowledge that a gun was found in the footwell of that car there's still an ongoing IOPC investigation the rumors that it's concluded and it will be published shortly but that's still up in the air but you know the the notion and I think this is really important the notion that Yasser Yukub was subject of an execution as his father suggested I think is simply untrue
0: so you've, you you kind of worked out, or the court eventually decided what had happened in in terms of the the police and the uh, the guns, etc. But you then were did a bit more digging in, and you tried to work out where uh, Yasser was going, and I think you, you found there was a kingpin. Was it, was it in Leeds, or was it Bradford that he was going to visit? And, and this person was a very interesting uh, example of a dealer because he was someone who was not just a dealer but also a police informer.
1: Yes. So uh, you're referring to a man known commonly as King Beggy. Yeah, you heard that right. King as in royal, uh, also known as Mohammed Nisar Khan, who then himself went on trial for murder. So unrelated to this story, went on trial for murder and was convicted, is uh, currently serving a, a very long sentence and is in prison. And so when I went back and through a, a lot of continued research, I found out that these two men had met. So Yasser Yagoob and Meggie had met shortly before Yasser was killed. And actually, they say they had met about business. And Yasser's father to this day maintains that the meeting was linked to a car that had been sold. He always told me that Yasser Yacoub Uh, was into buying and selling luxury cars. Now, out of the two men that met that day in a restaurant in Bradford, one of them, Yasser Yagoub, is now dead and the other, Mohammed Nisar Khan, is uh, in prison for murder. And I think what this really illustrates and shows is that there is an entire ecosystem in Yorkshire. And it's really odd looking at it this way because you've got to understand that Huddersfield is somewhere that I'd always associated with uh, kind of childhood memories and just good things and days out in the park and all that kind of stuff. Now I was looking at Ardisfield and looking at Yorkshire more broadly as this ecosystem of drug dealing, of people importing, selling, a whole chain of people. And Meggie and Yasa were both very much part of that. And what that meant and what it means now, and there's a real, I think there's a real urgency about this. And I've seen this, you know, since I've been back, is those two men are now out of the scene. And so when you have an established ecosystem like that, when you have people buying and selling drugs and people are removed, it doesn't just disintegrate. Of course not. What happens are people step in. People step into those spaces because there's a vacuum. And so what we've seen, and you know, we did two update episodes of Hometown, so there's two, two new episodes. And so when I went back, and that was just earlier this year, I really saw the effects of that. So I saw how there were now new people competing for that, that kingpin title in places like Bradford and Huddersfield and across Yorkshire. I also saw how that nurtured a culture of what I would call ultra violence. Yeah,
0: absolutely, it was horrible. That uh, the, the, the filming of the person who was tortured and killed—I mean, not that we saw that, but I mainly the, just the descriptions were. T-
1: of course, and you know, I don't want to make anyone uncomfortable. I don't want to make anyone queasy. But I, once again, I sat in on a trial of multiple men, three of whom were convicted for murder. Uh, this related to a young man called Mohammed Fazan Ayaz, who was tortured over multiple hours and eventually killed and once again it came out in court that there was a drug dynamic here that in fact fazan wasn't murdered by strangers in fact the people that murdered him in many ways had been his mentors and i'm talking about mentors in terms of i'll give you one example is a, a video appeared on snapchat of the the very person that was convicted of m- the murder of mohammed fazan at teaching him out to quote-unquote wash cocaine, you know, essentially when you turn uh, cocaine into to crack. And, um, you know, he was mentoring him. He was showing him what to do. And I think this is a really important bit of takeaway here for all of us as a society, but also for policymakers, is where you have a system whereby you've got multiple people competing at all levels. So yes, to be kingpins, but also competing at a ground level for particular turf violence and ultraviolence is currency so what that means is you've got this kind of almost desperation and this culture of if i can outdo you if i can do something that is more violent more disgusting more abhorrent that is going to be spoken about that is going to be heard about then people will continue to fear me and that fear is how a lot of these gangs thrive
0: You've got Neil Woods, who's uh, been another uh, subject of, uh, of one of my podcasts. You, you got him in. and uh, Yes. And he, you know, he's a remarkable man. And, and he, he told you this, this, the same story from when he was undercover and you know, nearly lost his life in Northampton. It, we know Completely. that it doesn't work. We know that that's not the right way to deal with the drug problems because actually disrupting the market usually leads to more violence as people reestablish their control.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think Neil is someone that I've got a tremendous amount of respect for, as you say, you know, Neil's uh, perspective and experience as someone that had worked undercover over an extended period of time was every time the police take someone out, so to speak, whether that be through recruiting informers or whether it be through actually convicting someone you know, we'll see these brilliant headlines. Of course we will. We'll see brilliant headline, uh, headlines about seizures, about, uh, you know, multi-million pound uh, drugs bust and so forth. What we don't see is that that just creates a vacuum and a space in which the next gang, and there's always a next gang. There's always the next gang. The next gang will step up to the plates. I remember Neil Woods, he used, he used this phrase. He said, uh, one of the competing gangs, in the case he was dealing with, he believes they would have been rubbing their hands together with, with glee and saying, brilliant, the police have done a brilliant job for <laughs> us, boys. Let's, let's get ready. It's, yeah. you know, it's what we've been waiting for. Get ready, yes. Yeah, and I, I saw that in motion on, in, the, in the streets of Yorkshire. I saw it in Bradford happening in front of my eyes.
0: There was one other, what I thought in some ways also very chilling discovery I made from your programme, which is that above the top dogs are legitimate businesses. That are laundering large amounts of money and putting them into things other than drugs. So there's a, that, that's a moral problem. You know, there are very rich people in Britain who are rich because they are the conduits for drug money into into sort of legitimate money out there. I think that's absolutely right, and it's crucial
1: if we want to understand this landscape. Because I think far too often we will we will talk about. And we will discuss what I would describe as the, the lower hanging fruit. And what we don't do is we think, and again, it's about this phrase that I use. It's about an ecosystem now in order, and we see this in hometown. And I spoke to someone who was working at this level, who on the surface of it, you know, has a, has a profile, has friends, has a house, uh, is seen as an upstanding member of the community and. This person, most people would have have no clue that they had any link to narcotics. And effectively what, what they explained is a system whereby money is laundered, cleaned, however you want to say it, and so dirty drugs money gets, gets clean. You can't do that, and this might appear or come across as somewhat controversial, you can't do that with people unless people who have what would be deemed quote-unquote legitimate businesses are willing to engage i'd even say and this this isn't in the series but this is from a lot of the research that i did and you know this is backed up with conversations that i've i've had consistently you need lawyers you need estate agents you need people who are willing to take a cut and do a little bit of fiddling for you and that that is all part of that ecosystem
0: indeed well, I'll finish just on a more positive note. i I like that towards the end the I think the Imams were working with the mothers and the female in the, in the women mm. communities to try to try to make them give them more authority, more empowerment in terms of of actually bringing mm-hmm. up their, their boys and h- helping them avoid this Ab-
1: absolutely, yeah, and I, I think it's really I'm so glad you raised this. I think it's very important to note that in every house that I set foot in, in every private conversation, even if families weren't willing to call the police or they weren't willing to talk about this stuff publicly, the mothers consistently would often hold their heads in their hands and they'd say to me, what am I supposed to do? I am desperate for this to end. So there is a willingness there. I think what we have to focus on, and this is happening, you know imams are doing this imam alias is leading the way there are, are the people doing doing this work though what we have to do is we have to empower and be allies to people who are on the front line in every community where people are willing to raise their head above the parapet and are willing to start having this conversation those are
0: the people we need to be backing absolutely well look um, that's been a, a wonderful hour of conversation we've and I want to thank you f- and your team because it's clearly a, you know, a seriously challenging thing to do this uh, this real time documentary so thank you for doing it if anyone's not seen it it's still available on on um, on iplayer it's called hometown and uh, this is mabeen uh, azan who is the uh, i guess the star the director <laughs> the funder uh, and thank also you. the communicator well thank you so much for sharing and thank you for the work you've done in illuminating what is a huge problem, not just in Huddersfield. Thank it's been you. a pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, wow, that was a really a, a remarkable roller coaster of a ride. A man coming to his hometown and discovering that things are very different from how they were not that long ago. You know, he's only been away for about 16 years. So I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, definitely see the series. It's called Hometown, and you can catch it up on the BBC iPlayer. Obviously, if you've enjoyed it, communicate in these podcasts to your friends, share them. And ideally, become a member of Drug Science. We're looking for people to become part of our community. Being a community member gives you access to many Drug Science events. But perhaps more importantly, also means that you're making a very real contribution to our organisation, which does rely on donations from people like you. So please go onto the website and sign up and carry on following me on Twitter as well. Thank you very much.